Well, I hope when you sing that song that you can see all the connection uh, those lyrics make to the book of Philippians. And um, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to be continuing our study this morning, looking at verses 27 through 30. And I just want to go on record in saying that I am absolutely loving the book of Philippians so far. And I hope that's true of you. It just seems to be exactly what I've needed in my life, and hopefully it's what we need as uh, in the life of our church right now. And it just seems like uh, I get done preaching one section, and I just can't wait to get to the next one. What is he going to say next? And uh, it just seems to be so um, appropriate for us right now, and there's so many implications for our individual lives and also for the corporate life of our church. And um, this morning's text is obviously... Um, as we'll see, very corporate in nature, and uh, I trust that God will use it to uh, really encourage our hearts together collectively as the body of Christ here at Lakeside. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul goes on in his letter, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Father, we thank you for the timeliness of your word. We thank you that your word is eternal and uh, we will spend all of eternity rejoicing in your word, even though we'll actually see the living word, the incarnate word, when we get to heaven and see Jesus, but I, I, I know that your written word will still play uh, a special role in our lives for all eternity, and so what a privilege to have this in our lives now while we're here on earth, and so I pray that your spirit would work in us through this text and uh, illuminate our minds to understand what Paul was saying here and, and how it applies to us and how it relates to the situations Uh, the specific uh, issues in our lives uh, individually and also in the corporate life of our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know you've all heard the familiar phrase, united we stand and divided we fall. This has been uh, a slogan of sorts for our country ever since it was first used by one of our founding fathers, John Dickinson, when he wrote the Liberty Song. Back in 1768, which put to music the spirit of the American Revolution that was about to break out, when Kentucky joined the Union in 1792, they adopted as their motto, United We Stand, Divided We Fall, which is still on their state seal today. Throughout America's history, a number of noted political figures like Patrick Henry and Abraham Lincoln used this phrase or similar words during times of national crisis. Most recently, you'll remember that uh, this became a popular watchword for the United States after the terrorist attacks uh, on 9-11. Lots of musicians uh, over the years have included the, the catchphrase, united we stand, divided we fall in their songs. Those of you who are Marvel Studio fans, I'm talking the younger crowd here, got to somehow hook you into this message this morning, Right? There's something here for you, but if you're a Marvel Studio fan, Marvel Comics fan, you will remember that, that the well-known mantra, united we stand, divided we fall, was chanted over and over again in the background of the movie trailer to Captain America Civil War. Remember that? Super Bowl 50 last year, the big release. Um, well, what you need to know, and I find this interesting, that even before... This tagline, United We Stand, 
Divided We Fall was ever used for the Avengers or as musical lyrics or a slogan for our country, apparently this statement can be traced all the way back to the ancient storyteller Aesop, who used it directly and indirectly in a couple of his fables. Uh, Let me just read one of those fables to you this morning. This is the Aesop's fable called The Four Oxen and the Lion. It goes like this. A lion used to prowl about a field in which four oxen used to dwell. Many a time he tried to attack them, but whenever he came near, they turned their tails to warn another so that whichever way he approached them, he was met by the horns of one of them. At last, however, they fell to a quarreling among themselves, and each went off to the corner of their pasture, and then the lion attacked them one by one, and soon made an end of all four. The moral of the story, united we stand, divided we fall, is not just a timeless principle that Aesop thought up. Uh, This is a biblical principle taught by Jesus Christ himself. You'll remember when the Pharisees accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan, who is the ruler of the demons, Jesus said to them, quote, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. A house divided against itself falls. It's Mark chapter 3, verse 24. Likewise, a, a church that's divided against itself cannot stand. It will inevitably fall apart and fail at its purpose of proclaiming the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And so in order for a a church, any church, to accurately reflect the gospel and effectively reach others with the gospel, its members must be committed to work together as one, side by side, hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, and joyfully endure any suffering that might come as a result of their commitment to the cause of Christ. And I think that is the basic point that Paul was making in this passage. After greeting and commending the Philippians in verses 1 through 11 and informing them how God was using his circumstances to to advance the gospel in verses 12 through 26, Paul began now exhorting them. And in verse 27, Paul introduced the, the theme of unity that is repeated throughout the rest of the letter. For example, um, Notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And what is the key to this unity that Paul was appealing to them about? Well, it's to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, verse 3, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't just look out for your own personal interests, but also look out for the interests of others. In the same chapter, chapter 2, verse 14, he says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Apparently, there was some grumbling going on in the church in Philippi. There was some uh, disputing, some arguing uh, going on, and then we see... uh, what is subtle uh, really become clear in chapter 4 when he says in verse 2, I urge Yodi and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. These were two women in the church who apparently had gotten cross-threaded with one another and uh, he, 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 he urged them to work out their differences, to get right with each other. And he also appealed to the fellow members of the church particularly one of the other elders, potentially. It says, indeed, in verse 3, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle and the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These ladies used to be struggling together for the work of the gospel. Now they were struggling against each other. And apparently that was representative of maybe some more um, disunity that was going on in the life of the church. So, so far, all we've seen about or learned about the church in Philippi is, is, is everything's positive, right? And, uh, and yet, despite all their strengths that we've learned about already, 
and, and even how precious these saints were to Paul, there was a subtle undercurrent of disharmony and strife among the church members in Philippi. And so Paul exhorted them here in chapter 1, verse 27, to be unified in their commitment to their primary task of protecting and propagating or promoting the gospel. And I would submit to you that since this is the first exhortation that Paul gave to the Philippian church, this, is, this was the most pressing problem in his mind that this church needed to address, that he needed to address. And so uh, if I had to pick a theme verse for the, the, the book of Philippians or this letter, I would say it's chapter 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Obviously, that's the verse that led me to choose the title that's not up there, thought it was up there, uh, Together for the Gospel, uh, Joyfully Partnering Together for the Cause of Christ. Um, it comes straight out of uh, verse 27. And, and essentially what Paul's saying, listen guys, whether or not I ever see you again, you ever see me again, the one thing I want to know most was that you guys have resolved whatever differences that have come between you so that you could stop contending against one another and get back to contending alongside one another for the cause of Christ. And uh, this is a message not just for the church in Philippi, this is a, church, this is a message for every church uh, in all time. Um, there, there's always uh, stuff that happens in the life of a church where people get sideways with one another, they get cross-read with one another, and this is a, a, an exhortation that we need to regularly hear and apply. And I'd like us to consider these verses in this way, that, that what Paul was doing here, he's, he's explaining four characteristics of a church that successfully advertises and advances the gospel. Four characteristics of a church that successfully advertises and advances the gospel. That is the goal of the church, is to advertise and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, a church can't do that effectively if they can't get along with one another. How can you reach out to those outside the four walls of the church if you can't even get your act together within the church? And so that's really, the, the, I think, the intent of, the, of these verses. So let's look at these four characteristics of a church that successfully advertises and advances the gospel. First of all, the church sinks together. The church sinks together. Obviously, that's from the word synchronize. Um, you can either be in sync or out of sync, right? So we're talking about the church sinks together. Notice verse 27. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word conduct there is the word uh, where we get the, the uh, word Indianapolis, um, Minneapolis, the polis word, the city. It's a word for, for city, uh, it's also the word from which we derive the English word politics, and uh, th this word speaks of people properly fulfilling their duties as citizens of their city or their country, but for the Christian, our city or country is what? Heaven. It's not America. Uh, it's not the United States. It's not whatever the uh, country that we live in. Um, now, you may remember uh, in the opening message uh, in this sermon series, that I mentioned how Philippi was a Roman colony uh, whose inhabitants had all the rights and privileges of Roman citizens, even though they didn't live in Italy, they lived in Greece. And so this was a very uh, unique city in that regard. And in fact, in Luke's record of Paul's first visit to the city in Philippi in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, he emphasized the fact that this was a Roman colony and Paul and Silas were arrested for being Jews or so they thought, right, uh, who were allegedly teaching things which were unlawful for Roman citizens to believe or to practice. And after that miraculous earthquake occurred while they were in the prison and the jailer guarding them was gloriously converted, the chief magistrates uh, were going to just say, hey, you can go now, but Paul let them know, hey, you realize you beat up on Roman citizens. 
And uh, when they realized that they had unjustly beaten and imprisoned them, uh, they personally came and released them. Um, when Paul was later arrested in Jerusalem, you know that he appealed to his Roman citizenship uh, as the leverage, if you will, to give him the right to have his legal case heard by the Emperor Nero. And that's why he was writing this letter while under house arrest in Rome, because he was a Roman citizen. So what's happening here is in this verse, and later in chapter 3, Paul creatively applied this concept of Roman citizenship to Christian citizenship. They all understood what it meant to be a Roman, and the privilege that that was, well, what about, and the responsibility that was, how about the privileges and responsibilities of being a Christian? And so Paul knew that the the Philippians were very proud of their status as citizens of Rome, but he wanted them to see the far greater significance of their status as citizens of heaven. In chapter 3, verse 20, he actually says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the same way that these believers in Philippi maintain an allegiance to the Roman Empire, Paul expected them to maintain an even greater allegiance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Paul was doing here when he said, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, he was commanding the believers in Philippi to behave or to live like good citizens of the gospel who were caught up in the amazing privilege of having heard and received the good news of salvation and that their identity was ultimately not in the fact they were Romans, but their identity was in the fact that they were Christians. And by the way, this is the command, the only command in this, in this passage here, only conduct yourselves in, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And everything that comes after this is really supplemental. It just supports... Um, this, this overarching command. One, one commentator I thought said it well, what um, Paul was saying here to the Philippians is that they were to live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of their heavenly homeland. And then he goes on, he says, as Philippi was a colony of Rome in Macedonia, so the church was a colony of heaven in Philippi whose members were to live uh, lives as its citizens in Philippi. In some ways, this church qualifies as a colony of heaven in Montgomery County, in the state of Texas, in the country of America. And so we are to live not as Americans so much or as citizens of Texas, um, but as citizens of heaven. And I know that as Texans, there's a lot of pride. There's a lot of significance, right? That, hey, we're, we're from the great state of Texas. Um, if there was ever a, a state in our union that needed to hear this message, hey, if you're going to get excited about something, it's not that you're a Texan, but that you're a Christian. Amen? And uh, you get the significance of, of, of that, and, the, and, and you can see the connection that Paul was making here um, with these believers. And so he says here, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. His point is this, that the, the, the fact that our lives have been impacted by the gospel should show by the way we live our lives. We should talk, we should act in a Christ-like manner so people see Christ in us and how he's changing us and transforming us. And we know Paul's main mission, main, main passion was that everyone would know the truth of the good news that God sent his son into the world to save those who would repent of their sin and place their faith in him. And so in the same way, we should share this passion, we should share this mission to share the gospel with as many people as we can. And as it's often said, to use words if we need to. Paul's not necessarily talking right here uh, about sharing the gospel with our lips as he is sharing the gospel with our lives, only conduct. He's talking about our conduct, our behavior, our lifestyle. In other words, we're, we, we, we are sharing the gospel by the way we're living our lives. 
Our lives are a reflection of the gospel. And as Paul said later to uh, Titus, Titus chapter 2, and I think it's verses 5, uh, verse 8, and verse 10, uh, three times he said something along the lines of, listen, I want you to live a certain kind of way. I want you to have these attributes in you as older men, as an older woman, younger men, and younger women. You need to live this way and have these qualities in your life so that uh, you make the gospel look good, that you adorn the doctrine of God. And I don't know if we think about that enough, that, that, that our lives as Christians are either making the gospel look good or look bad. How's that going in your life? Is your life, honestly, is your life, does your life make the gospel look good or does your life make the gospel look bad? See, Paul was concerned that the gospel would in no way be undermined by the lifestyle of those who claim to believe it. How we live our lives either helps or hinders the progress of the gospel. It either strengthens or weakens the impact of the gospel in the hearts and minds of others. And so Paul's command here is, 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 to the believers in Philippi is, is one that he commanded to, to other churches as well. This is a, a, a pretty common command that he gave, um, particularly to the other two churches that he wrote to uh, while he was under house arrest. The other prison epistles would be uh, the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians. And we're right there in the same neighborhood, so you can just look quickly, turn over to the right, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul said that he prayed for the believers in Colossae that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then back in the book of Ephesians, the, the hinge on which the, the entire book of Ephesians uh, turns is Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 1. He says, therefore, I, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And what he was referencing was the first three chapters where he was describing who the Ephesians were in Christ. And in light of who you are in Christ and what you've been called out of and called into, that, that you should live your life in a manner worthy of that. And let me show you what that looks like. And so chapters four, five, and six are all about practical Christian living. The point is this, how we behave should match up with what we believe. Our life should be in sync with who we are in Christ. The way we live our lives must be consistent with what we say we believe. And you know as well as I do that there are many people who say they're Christians, but you'd never know it by looking at the way they're living their life, right? Their lives are no different from the rest of the people in the world who don't know Christ. And unfortunately, those who, who profess to be Christians, who call themselves Christians, but who continue to live ungodly, worldly lives, make the gospel look bad and make people not want to embrace the gospel. Well, why do I need the gospel? If, if that's what the gospel does, I don't need that. They're no different than me. One commentator share some strong words. This is what he said, quote, the world can hardly be expected to embrace a faith whose proponents so little emulate its standards of holiness and fail to manifest the transforming power of Christ. When the unsaved look at the church and do not see holiness, purity, and virtue, there appears to be no reason to believe the gospel it proclaims. When pastors commit gross sins and are later restored to positions of leadership in the church, when church members lie, steal, cheat, gossip, and quarrel, and when congregations seem to care little about such sin and hypocrisy in their midst, the world is understandably repulsed by their claims to love and serve God, and the name of Christ is sullied and dishonored. Wow. We could close in prayer right there, right? That's some heavy-duty stuff. But the opposite is true. When we, when we do live holy lives that are radically different from the rest of the world, we show off the transforming power of the gospel. And it, it makes people want to know, how can I experience what you've experienced? I want to I have what you have. And, and they want to have the same kind of transformation in their lives as well. 
And so we need to realize that the most effective tool for the advancement of the gospel is not a stirring sermon or a powerful book, but it's a consistent life. You can make a greater impact for the gospel living a holy, pure, consistent life than I can preaching on Sunday morning. You live in a consistent Christian life out there in the community will make a bigger impact for the cause of Christ than a, a book that anybody could write or a sermon anybody could preach. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 3, 2. He says, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You're a walking sermon. You're a walking book. The question is, what are people hearing? What are they reading? What are they picking up from your life? Warren Wearsby, in his commentary, included a little poem that goes like this. You're writing a gospel, a chapter a day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithful or true, just what is the gospel according to you? We know about the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to, to Mark, right, and Luke and John. But what about the gospel according to you? What are people learning about the gospel from your life, your words, your actions, your interaction with them? How about this? If you were the only Christian in your family, that's true of some of you. If you're the only family, a Christian in your family, if you're the only Christian in your cul-de-sac, you're, you're the only Christian at your workplace or at your school, what are those people learning about Christ? What, what would they conclude about the gospel by observing your life? Now, thankfully, you and I aren't alone we stand together for the gospel with other Christians. So hopefully the final testimony is not left up to our life. And if we're not having a good day and we're not at our best spiritually, hopefully there's somebody else that's having a better day and is in a better place spiritually and it all balances out, right? And uh, that's what's the beauty of coming together and we can cover one another's weaknesses, amen, here. And hopefully the collective witness of this body that yes, there are some that are more mature than others, and there are some that are uh, much more at the beginning stages of the process of sanctification, and so maybe their language and, 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 and their actions and their priorities have not been as transformed yet as maybe someone who's been walking uh, with the Lord for more years, but it all comes together and works itself out in the life of the church. And that brings us to the second, the second characteristic of, uh, of a church that effectively advertises and or successfully advertises and advances the gospel. Not only must the church sync together, in other words, that our lives are consistent with the gospel, they're synced up with the truth of the gospel, um, but uh, secondly, the church stands together. The church stands together. Notice, again, back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Paul says, listen, it shouldn't matter to you if I ever make it back to you or not, whether I live or die. He wasn't sure exactly what was going to happen to him there. But listen, bottom line, you're to be living a life that is worthy of of the gospel. And, and he said, I want to hear, I want to hear, whatever, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind. The idea here is of spiritual steadfastness, to be unwavering, undaunted when we face opposition or when we come under attack, that we hold our ground, we defend our position at all costs, we, we never compromise our beliefs or our convictions. He repeated this in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So this was an issue that Paul wanted to make sure that they stood firm. In his sister letter, um, Ephesians, 
A lot of similarities between Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. But in, in, in Ephesians chapter 6, you know that in the context of the armor of God, he mentions this idea of standing firm. Philippians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then he says it one more time, verse 14, stand firm, therefore, and then he goes through and lists the, the armor that the Lord has provided us by His Spirit to wear on a daily basis. And so the key to standing firm against the enemy is wearing the armor that God has provided us to wear, the spiritual armor, but also sticking together so that the enemy cannot overpower us or, or tear us apart. So, you know, it's one thing to wear your armor. That's helpful, but it's also Important that you stick together, that you don't get separated out like those oxen, right, to different corners of the field. And uh, that's Satan's tactic is to divide and what? Conquer. And so you got to stick together. And I love what uh, Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, kind of an obscure verse, but so helpful here. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12, if any... And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. So if you're out there by yourself, you might have your armor on, but you might still be able to be overpowered by the enemy. But you know what? If you've got somebody with you fighting side by side, shoulder to shoulder, back to back, you can resist the enemy. And then he goes on and says, a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Great analogy of a rope, right? The, The more... Uh, ropes that are all intertwined together, the stronger that, that rope is. So Paul says that we, he, he wants them to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. In other words, we shouldn't be fighting amongst ourselves. We should be uniting together against a common foe. Listen, I'm not your enemy. You're not my enemy. The person sitting next to you is not your enemy. The person sitting you know, across the, 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 the sanctuary is not your enemy. This, this is not, we're not the enemy. And, and sadly, there's a lot of friendly fire going on in the church. When you, you lose sight of that, hey, hey you're, you're my brother. You're not my enemy. You're my sister. You're not my enemy. The enemy's out there. And so instead of fighting against each other, we need to unite together against a common foe And we should move as it were, as one man, that we're just one person with one mind, one heart, one soul. I love the way he describes that, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. This is just uh, one of several classic appeals that Paul made for unity and harmony within the body of Christ. First um, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Um, we all know the Corinthians had their issues. First um, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, I have heard by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. What are you talking about? Well, I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. So they're all saying, well, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I follow Christ. Well, I follow Cephas. I'm Peter. I'm, I'm, I'm a Peter follower. And then the real spiritual people were like, well, I'm a Christ follower. And they were just getting into each other's faces about this stuff and quarreling amongst themselves and in, 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 uh, really petty things here. And so Paul confronts that. And then in Ephesians, this may be my favorite passage on unity, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. He says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, we've got to work hard 
to be humble and gentle and patient and be tolerant of one another and be loving towards one another. And that's how we preserve the unity of the Spirit that God has given us by His Spirit. He's made us one in Christ. We all have the same Spirit. And so we need to maintain that and not do anything to mess that up. Why? Because there's one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see the oneness principle? And really, this is the language back in Philippians of athletes and soldiers whose victory and success is based on teamwork and, and cooperation. And so like athletes and like soldiers, we need to train together and study together and pray together and serve together. And and in in so doing, we develop this unique camaraderie, this fellowship of the gospel we've talked about in the past and this unbreakable bond between us. And so we can't let anyone or anything come between us or divide us or cause us to stop living for Christ or preaching Christ. We need to be presenting a united front as we defend and proclaim the gospel. Again, shoulder to shoulder, back to back. And so if a church is to be successful in that, they must sink together, they must stand together, but thirdly, they need to strive together. The church must strive together. Notice he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Here it is, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This word striving, sunathleo, sounds very much like our English word, what? Athletics. Um, This is the word from where we get that. And so Paul shifts the imagery from a soldier standing firm at his post to, to a, a team playing to win, and they're struggling alongside one another. That's literally what he means by striving together. It's, 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 it's struggling alongside another person. And so we need to realize that, that God never intended for us to have to live a solo Christian life. Christianity is a team sport. That's why he designed the church. Um, We need one another. And uh, none of us should act like ball hogs or prima donnas or glory hounds where it's all about us and we don't know how to pass and we don't know how to play as a team. We're not, we don't, we don't have a good, um, you know, we're not a team player. We need to be team players. And so he says that that you need to strive, not on your own, strive together for the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel there is a reference to the Christian faith as revealed by God and recorded here in the pages of Scripture. Jude, verse 3, would probably be the best reference, cross-reference for this where Jude said, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you, remember, contend, what? Earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. That's essentially what Paul is saying here, is to contend, to strive together for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. In other words, there's a body of truth that encapsulates the gospel message that a church must protect and promote. Paul refers to this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. He talks about how the church is the household of God, which is it's the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And then he goes on to define the truth, gives just a little kind of a, almost a little old Christian hymn. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, talking about the incarnation of Christ, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Again, a kind of a veiled reference there to the gospel, to the message of salvation. And so um, what he's talking about is, that this, is, this, is this is what a person must understand and must believe in order to be saved. That's the faith of the gospel. 
what a person, the essential truths that a person must understand and must believe in order to be saved. And we need to strive together to protect that and proclaim that, to guard that, to pass it on to the next generation. And as we strive together in this common cause or towards this common goal, it is inevitable that we will face opposition and persecution from the enemies of the gospel by the truth haters. And that's what he goes on to talk about in the remaining verses. And and this brings us to our fourth point, the the fourth characteristic of a church that that, um, successfully advertises and advances the gospel is this church suffers together. The church suffers together. Notice what he says in verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents. That word alarmed, interesting, only used here uh, in the Bible, but used elsewhere in in Greek uh, literature to describe a horse shying away from battle. If you're somebody that has horses, you, you know that sometimes a horse can get spooked by something, and uh, it makes them cower away or, or run away, and, 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 and so what, what Paul's saying is, listen, don't be spooked by your opponents, don't, don't be alarmed, don't be intimidated, don't be unnerved by the threats and attacks of your critics and your opponents, don't panic, stay calm. And so as a church, we need to be strong and courageous whenever we face opposition and persecution from those who find our lives, as one commentator said, to be living rebukes to their pagan way of life. Hopefully that's true, that our lives rebuke paganism, rebuke ungodliness. And so when a, when a group of believers like ourselves or any gathering of believers in any church is attacked or persecuted or opposed and it continues to go on its course, stay the course, unfazed, unflinching, that's a sign to those who are doing the attacking and persecuting that all their attempts to undermine the church and the work of the gospel are futile and they'll be ultimately punished by God for fighting against him and his truth. That's what he says. Notice, in no way be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. This Word destruction is talking about everlasting torment and death. The fact that there are people hostile towards the church and hostile towards the gospel is proof that they're not saved. And they'll be punished accordingly in hell. Second Thessalonians, Paul writes about how Christ will vindicate his people one day when, when he returns. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your per- perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. In other words, you, uh, you guys are going through it. Paul said, you guys have been going through it. You've been getting persecuted. You've been being afflicted. And, and, and I just speak, I'm so proud of you guys. I, I talk about you to all the other churches, how you've persevered, how you, you haven't lost your faith in the midst of all of this. You're continuing to trust God. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. I think this is so helpful for us to think about because I think it's true that unbelievers will often assume that when bad things happen to us as Christians or happen to a church, that's a sign that they're being judged by God. When in reality, it's they who are under God's judgment. 
One commentator said it this way, opposing the gospel, the world faces God's destruction. Proclaiming the gospel, the church waits for God's salvation. And that's what Paul said here. When you are not spooked by your opponents or set off by your opponents, not not only is it a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. In other words, those of us who brave the the wrath of those who have been taken captive by Satan to do his bidding will eventually be delivered and vindicated by God. And being persecuted for our commitment to Christ is evidence that we're truly saved. And that the persecutors aren't. And when we respond like this in faith, it shows whose side we're really on. Notice he says, and that too from God. In the same way God is against them, he is for us. In fact, God is on our side, fighting for us. And so he grants us the strength and the courage that we need to stand firm and continue to strive together in the work of the gospel, which again demonstrates the fact that we, by God's grace, have been truly born again. Now, to ensure that the Philippians wouldn't be surprised or scared off, if you will, by their critics and opponents, he reminded them in the following verses that to suffer for the sake of Christ was a gift from God. And therefore, it was a great honor and privilege. Notice what he says, and this verse is profound. I almost thought about just like, camping out on this one verse for an entire message. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Now this is a profound concept here. That, that suffering is a part of the Christian life and, and should come as no surprise. And those who follow Christ should expect opposition and realize it's an evidence of God's grace in our lives. We, we like to talk about the evidences of God's grace we see in our lives. When's the last time we say, hey, I'm suffering, I'm being persecuted, I'm whatever, I'm facing opposition. Isn't that so cool? Because that's just an evidence of God's grace in my life. We're like, you know what, I, I would rather not have that evidence of grace in my life. But his point is, listen, we are, we are saved by grace. We all know that, we get that. We're saved by grace through faith alone. It's not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, right? So that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So, so we're saved by grace, but we suffer by grace. It's in the same way that faith is a gift from God. Suffering is a gift from God that He grants us. In the same way that God grants us the gift of salvation, He grants us the gift of suffering. Guess what? It's a package deal. And Paul knew it better than anyone because when God saved him and set him apart as the apostle to the Gentiles, God was real up front with him. Sometimes we don't get the same scenario going on in our story, our conversion, but, but God was very upfront with Paul and he told him in Acts chapter 9 how much he would have to suffer for his name. Paul's like, hey, I just got saved, woohoo, and he goes, oh, by the way, you're going to suffer a whole lot for my name. Oh, Really? That doesn't sound as fun anymore, right? Listen, don't let anybody ever tell you that, that the Christian life is nothing but joy and blessing. There is great joy and blessing, amen? But it often involves much pain and suffering. And a lot of times, a person's life doesn't get easier when they get saved, it gets harder. And if, and if they don't understand this principle, then they're like the, 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 the rocky soil. In Jesus' parable of the soils, that, that uh, as soon as they face affliction or persecution, it says they walk away. They walk away from the Lord. Whoa, whoa, sign out. I didn't sign up for this. Well, no, it's a package deal. And that's why Jesus said to consider the cost of following me. The Bible says we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. 
Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, they were destined for this. This was their destiny to suffer. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul said, everyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Just expect it. Bank on it. It's going to happen. And then he asked, Peter actually said this in 1 Peter chapter 1, or excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, listen to what he, he wrote here. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed but is to glorify God in this name. And Paul understood this very well because he experienced all sorts of suffering throughout his life and ministry. And he counted it a privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ and his church and in the same way that Christ has suffered for him. Hey, Christ suffered for me, the least I can do is suffer for him. 2 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 8, he said this to Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or to me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Hey, Timothy, try it. you like it. Come on, man. And the rest of the apostles felt the same way. This wasn't just Paul. He wasn't the only crazy one out there that thought this was, was, was uh, something to rejoice in. You remember when the, the apostles, Peter and, and, and the rest of the disciples, early on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, they were arrested, they were flogged, they were rebuked for sharing the gospel and said, don't, we don't want to ever hear you name the name of Christ ever again. And they beat them. They said, now get out of here. And it says they went away rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. Wow. In fact, Peter would later write to encourage believers who were scattered all over Asia and being persecuted for their faith. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, he says, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. He went on, he said in verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So suffering for Christ was to be expected and embraced. We probably are okay with the expected part, but how about the embracing part? <laughs> yeah, we should expect to, be, to suffer, but embrace it? That is definitely the, the impression and the example of the Apostle Paul. In fact, he says here, um, at the end, this last verse, he says, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. In other words, he wasn't the overweight coach on the sideline drinking Dr. Pepper and eating zingers while he was telling everybody to run laps. I mean, he's like, hey, guys, I know what I'm talking about. I'm right out there with you. You know, I got mud on my uniform, and I got blood coming out of different places, and, 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 and I'm, I'm bloodied, I'm, I'm beaten, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. Hey, listen, you now you are experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. That word conflict is the word agonia or agon in the Greek, which is the word for agony. And so again, just a reminder that the Christian life is not a, not a cakewalk. It's a war. It's a battlefield. It's a, it's a never-ending wrestling match. And the enemies of Christ in Philippi, they were hostile to the gospel. 
from day one. I mean, they saw Christianity as a, as a threat to the political establishment there. And they considered the, the Christians' allegiance to Christ rather than Caesar as treasonous. And the Philippian believers had, 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 had seen the suffering that Paul endured on his initial visit there when he was imprisoned. They also had heard of the reports of the suffering that he experienced in other cities and was presently enduring there in Rome. And now they're experiencing the same kind of suffering. But Paul wanted them to be encouraged, knowing that they weren't alone in their suffering. They weren't, they weren't having to deal with something that only they had to deal with. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation, no trial has overtaken you, but that which is what? Common to man. And God's faithful. He'll not allow you to be tested or tried or tempted beyond what you're able, but with every trial, with every temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so you can endure it. First Peter 4, or 5, 9 says this, resist him, Satan, Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. In other words, whatever you're going through, there's somebody else in this world going through the same thing and worse. And by the grace of God, they're enduring. And therefore, you can endure. And what's even more encouraging than that is that whatever you're experiencing, whatever type of suffering you're experiencing in your life, it's nothing that Christ didn't also experience when he was here on this earth. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, For it was fitting for him, Christ, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And then it says this, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for since he himself was tempted or tried in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Listen, you've got somebody who can come to your aid no matter what you're experiencing. And guess what? Christ has been there and done that. And so that should give us encouragement and hope and joy. Even as Paul rejoiced in chapter 3 of the book of Philippians to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Paul wanted that. I want to share. I want to know what it, what it means. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and I don't want to know the fellowship of his suffering, even to the point of being conformed to his death. I'm willing to die just like Christ died. Powerful stuff. And so we're in this together, beloved, with Christ, together with Christ, together with each other, and so we need to remember, united we stand and divided we fall. I told you there was two Aesop's fables. Let me read the last one to you. It's called The Bundle of Sticks. It's a good story. I think it represents this text well. The short fable tells of a man whose sons often quarreled among themselves. To show them the benefit of working together, he, bring, he brought them a bundle of sticks and he asked them to break the bundle of sticks. As expected, the brothers could not break the sticks when they were together. However, they could easily be broken individually. And here's the moral of the story. My sons, if you are of one mind and unite to assist each other, you will be as this bundle, uninjured by all the attempts of your enemies. But if you're divided among yourselves, you'll be broken as easily as these sticks." Father, thank you for the power of your word, the practicality of your word. So grateful for uh, just all the, again, the implications here, the applications for our lives. We know that ultimately uh, we can't do any of this stuff in our own strength. And so we beg you to grant us uh, grace um, by your spirit uh, through the indwelling of the person of Christ. We know that Christ lives in us. He's our life and it's no longer us who live, but 
but he lives in us and through us. And I pray that we would see that uh, take place as soon as this service is over to, to begin to unify us as a body even more. And as we go throughout the week, if we get sideways or cross-threaded with someone, that we would be quick to sort out our differences, whatever those might be, to get right with you and to get right with each other so that we could truly say that we are one mind, one heart, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.